this week on the Backtable Podcast. There are a lot of challenges today in the delivery of healthcare, and it underscores the importance of advocacy. It underscores the importance of having physician leaders to step up in these roles, to identify the challenges, and to provide support and to provide a voice that stands up and defends what we're doing and helps secure a path into the future for us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. I'm your host today. My name is Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT, and it is my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Jean Brown today. Good morning, Jean. Good morning, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited for this conversation. Let me just do a little introduction for those who don't know you. Jean Brown is a private practice otolaryngologist in Charleston, South Carolina. His entrepreneurial spirit was a driving force that helped create the largest otolaryngology private practice in South Carolina. Dr. Brown has been a physician advocate and a champion for quality health care throughout his career. He currently serves on the American Board of Otolaryngology Board of Directors. He is a founding member of the Private Practice Study Group that created a home for private otolaryngologists to interact and to share best practices. He also founded Otolaryngology and Allergy Specialists Integrated Solutions, known as OASIS. This is a regional clinically integrated network that offers practices support and creates a forum for national private practice otolaryngology leaders at their annual meeting. His current interest lies in preserving the specialty and preparing next-generation otolaryngologists to advocate and lead the specialty into the future. He resides in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and has three college-age children. Welcome to the show, Gene. Ashley, thank you so much for having me. I just feel like the luckiest person to have the best job in the world. I'm very impressed with what you guys are doing at Backtable and what you're doing for the specialty and what you mean for the practitioners in our space. And congratulations on all of your success. Thank you so much for saying that. We, we appreciate it and, and feel very, very privileged to be able to, you know, sit in this seat every Saturday morning and get to talk to people from all over our specialty. I just want to say one more thing, Ashley, if you don't mind. We're going to talk around a lot of topics in the specialty today, and I, I just want everybody to know that I'm, I'm speaking as an individual. I may mention the Academy here and there, but I'm not speaking as an agent or a representative of the Academy, nor should any of my statements or personal sentiments be taken in that light. Absolutely. Thank you for that disclaimer. You know, our topic today is the future of otolaryngology, a collaborative approach. And, you know, before we get into that, can you just tell us, you know, a little bit of background about you and your practice and what you've been up to over the last several years? Sure. I grew up in a family business. My dad was a pharmacist. He had two pharmacies that he owned and ran. I went to pharmacy school in Chapel Hill. I wanted to come out and open more businesses, but the further I got into clinical medicine, the stronger the pull into medicine was, and ultimately I altered my path and went into medical school and subsequently did my residency here in Charleston and have built upon a lot of my early experiences in entrepreneurial 
exposures in terms of what I've done and how I've influenced my practice. It's really been an amazing journey. I wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. Being able to help patients and work in such a special field that that all of us reside in and practice in, being able to have independence in my job, being a part of my community where every patient that comes in to see me has a, a direct contact and line into who I am. We have mutual friends or I've cared for their family or they went to school with my kids. And I, I just can't overemphasize how special of a job and what a blessing it's been to be able to, to practice in this field and the breadth and the challenging patient issues that we see every day in general otolaryngology in the guise of a private practice and uh, just feel more and more confident and, and happy that I made the best decision ever to go this route. Amazing. And talk to me about like the early days back when you started that practice, or did you join a practice that existed or you started a practice? Tell me more about that. Ashley, I joined my current practice straight out of residency. I was the fourth physician in our practice. And in our community, there were a lot of solo practices and we were able to, you know, really create a, a quality practice built up upon solid clinical reputations of my partners that I joined. And over time, as most of the solo and independent practices, as they would retire and phase out, we absorb most of the growth into our group. And from that standpoint, we're able to become the largest practice. And it just gave us uh, some lift to reach into different parts of the business of otolaryngology and to expand our ancillary provisions. You know, we have a pretty robust practice. We have an ambulatory surgery center inside of our practice. Of course, we do imaging and hearing aids and practice the breadth of allergy. We even have general allergists inside of our program, and we think that adds a lot to the quality of care that we can offer the sinonasal population. We even have a compounding pharmacy, my background. We brought that into the practice, and while it's not a great business investment, it offers a lot of advantages for our patients who can access specialized and individualized treatments for their problems. Did you guys always know that you wanted to grow or was it just the environmental influences of, you know, having more patients coming to you because other practices had closed and so you needed to grow to be able to accommodate that extra demand? I think it was, you know, we had to grow to survive. We had to leverage our size to create efficiencies that allowed us to run our businesses more practically with lower overhead. We had to get large enough that we could negotiate more favorably with payers. And along the way, we've had to negotiate with hospitals and other members of the medical community as certain discussions arose and challenges came upon us. So it really was intentional. And it was the only way I feel like we really could have survived and been able to accomplish the things that we've done. Can we unpack that a little bit more? Because I think that really ties into, you know, what we see kind of across otolaryngology as a whole with, you know, small groups kind of consolidating or coming together or people deciding to join hospital systems, all these things. So 
that need to survive. Can you talk about the pressures for the private practice otolaryngologists and how has that evolved over the last several years? You know, when you think about your practice 10 or 20 years ago and you think about it now, you know, what are the big things that have changed that have forced this adaptation for survival? The big obvious one would probably be reimbursement and contracting with insurance companies and that part of it. But I could be wrong. You know, it, it's the it's the stress and the, the challenges of managing your small business. And in healthcare, we, we all know what's happening. It's obvious that the Medicare conversion factors at the same value it was in 1993. Our inflation has increased 106% since that time. Commercial payers base some of their reimbursement calculations on the conversion factor. So revenue growth has not kept up with the challenges and the cost of living adjustments that we've faced over the last 30 years. That's a major challenge. COVID made all of this 100 times harder. We've seen post-COVID inflationary numbers are a major pressure on us. Labor, there's no labor. I need to hire a couple of new providers in my practice, and I can't even make an offer to someone who would be a good fit in my practice because I don't have the staff to assist them in clinic. And my other staff's about to run me out of town because they're already stretched so thin. So the labor challenges are real. I think that there are a lot of challenges from other players in the market now. Uh, the commoditization of healthcare is what I call it. You've got investors who are investing in our practices, trying to make money off of what we do. I think that's very bad for medicine. I think it's very bad for our practices. We've seen a lot of large hospitals, private hospitals, employing otolaryngologists to drive their ancillary businesses to capture the overall spend of a population that they base their hospital provisions to. So it creates recruitment challenges. It's nearly impossible to recruit to rural areas. I'm not sure who's going to practice outside of urban settings in the years to come as we become a more subspecialized field and the younger generation seems to be more focused in practicing in an urban area. That's just going to become harder. But overall, it, it's really the challenges that any other small business might face, except those small businesses would raise their prices to create a lift in their revenue to accommodate the overhead growth. And we can't do that in medicine. That's why you're going to see more consolidation of private practices. That's why private equity is able to get a purchase in our field and are investing in our groups. And that's why more and more of our physicians are going to employment. It is a challenged business model and you've got to be larger and you've got to be smarter and you've got to be diversified to succeed in this competitive climate. Yeah, it's it's not as simple as just, you know, one thing. There's There's multiple facets to it, multiple moving parts, which can make it even more challenging. So, you know, you and I had talked previously about kind of this defining or aha moment fork in the road for you. Tell me that story. Well, to be honest, I was I was cruising through the first 15 years of my career. I was happy. I was very satisfied with my quality of life and my income. My kids were growing up. 
and my family was doing very well. I was unplugged. I wasn't connected or worried about anything else until one night, I remember it so clearly, we went out to dinner with a private practice in our community. It's a large private practice, like 100 physicians. Like specialty or like medicine practice? They were primary care practice. They were, they were all primary care. And they had the vision of creating a, a new medical campus. And they were building a lot of buildings. And they were building a surgery center, labs, radio imaging. It was just a complete campus centered around their practice. And they wanted us to be a part of that, which would make sense because we were the largest group. But over the course of the dinner, it became obvious that not only did they want us to come into and practice in the space, they wanted to rent us the space, and they wanted to rent us their electronic health record, and they wanted to rent us the staff and the chairs and the computers. And they wanted us to do all of our surgeries in their center and do all of, all of our ancillary work there at their campus. And in return for that, they would give us referrals from their 100 physicians. And, you know, at first it really didn't sink in. But after I went home, I had a difficult time swallowing that. And it just didn't seem right that physicians were using physicians for their own good. And ever since that day, it kind of flipped a switch with me. And I've tried to really go to the other extreme and embody collaboration, physician advocacy, and really just trying to stand up for physicians across the board. I think that early in my youth, I was really deep in the competitive spirit of trying to see every patient in my community and upset when I didn't. And today, I, I try to have a, a viewpoint where we're really not in competition for each other, but what can I do with the other physicians in my community, in my state, in the United States? What can I do with them to improve health care? What can I do to help support their practices, to help them succeed? And what can I do to represent them on the highest stages in terms of standing up for what we do, how we get paid, how we're valued, and how we're treated across the board? It kind of was a turning moment for me, and from that date, I have become a lot more active in medicine and in societies, a lot more interaction with physicians around me and in my region and across the board. And as you turn the corner and you can see that you're in the back half of your career, you think, what can I do to really make a difference? And for me, it's been to be an advocate of the specialty and for physicians. And as painful as that night was, I really look back on that. And I'm glad that it happened and had a positive influence on me in that regard. Yeah, I think we're all naturally competitive because, you know, in, in medical school, we're competing to be, you know, in that top quartile or to be AOA or to, you know, especially as ENTs with it being a competitive specialty where it's deeply rooted. And so kind of switching to that more collaborative spirit of what's good for all of us, what is good for the individual and kind of let's all win together. You know, you're, you're so right, Ashley. It's almost a Darwinian phenomenon that we finish and we're competitive and 
have to be the best at everything we do, which bleeds over into how we practice. And one of the, the things that we aren't trained in or exposed to enough over the course of our training and our formidable years is how can we work together as a team to make each other better and to offer better care for patients. I want to dive into what happens after that aha moment, after you saw that fork in the road and decided, okay, let's have more collaboration in my community. Tell me, for example, how Oasis was formed and the years that have kind of led to that, and which is you know now becoming the private practice study group and, and eventually this year, like a, a section, right? Otolaryngology private practice section is coming Yes, that's definitely something I'm very proud of and happy about. The year after that dinner, we formed Oasis, and we had no idea what we were forming, to be honest. We didn't know what it was going to become. Still don't know what it's going to become, but I'll tell you what it is. It started off as a clinically integrated network, and we were able to electronically connect providers using allergy practice management software. So we had an electronic connection and we share patient data and our goal on that front was to improve patient outcomes and best practices. Along with that arm, we established a GPO, a group purchasing organization, and for our members, we were able to allow for better purchasing negotiation and we saved practices a lot of money in terms of some of the supplies that were needed to operate their practices. Allergy antigens, office equipment, supplies. We had had contracts with numerous vendors that offered advantages to other practices. And then the third part of that was my pet, I guess, was an annual meeting. And the Oasis annual meeting was where we created a platform for our members to come and interact and over time was able to grow that into a national audience where interested parties and national private practice leaders would come and we would share every year. A large part of the success of this meeting was due to the participation of Jim Denenny, who came every year and offered his insights. And then it just naturally grew and expanded and became the meeting where challenges and private practice were discussed regarding an array of topics, including the business of medicine, the overall need for advocacy, how we managed our practices, and was very successful. And to watch what grew out of that platform and the efforts from Oasis that ultimately fueled interest and an understanding of the need to grow a private practice section within the academy, that's been a a very valued accomplishment for me personally. And uh, I really think that a lot of people that aren't in private practice don't realize what the need was or, or why that was done. And I think some people who aren't in that community might even feel threatened. But several years ago, we did a a survey, and we sent it out to all the Academy members. Basically, it was an ask, what are the challenges in what you do? What is your interaction with the Academy? 
and help us understand the challenges in your everyday life. You know, what is your practice like? How many offices are you at? What are your challenges with the delivery of care? And a lot of those questions were open-ended, and we got a, a hearty response back, over 500 responses, and there were a lot of comments out there. And what it unveiled to us is that a lot of private practices and a lot of private practitioners were on islands. They felt disconnected. They were up against immense challenges. To hear some of their stories about being unable to recruit other physicians into their practices, to have no strength at the table with payers, and to just be at the mercy of vendors. And I don't know how some of these practices stayed together. They didn't feel like the academy represented them. They they didn't feel represented by anyone. There was some venom and some obvious frustration in the tone of some of those survey responses. And I think that created another wave of interest and momentum that propelled this movement that maybe it was birthed in Oasis. I I like to think that. It certainly was one of the goals of that outreach. But that survey fortified that growing interest and momentum and ultimately has led into the private practice study group and into the private practice section that's going to be unveiled shortly. And what we've seen is we've grown this group of people, and we have our own community on ENT Connect, and you can watch how the community's grown over time, and you can see how these doctors have come out of the woodworks, never involved, never engaged, never had anyone to really talk to about these issues, and to witness how they interact and some of the conversations they exchange electronically. And, and just how they share some of the challenges in their practices, it really shows how much this section of our specialty really needed that engagement. And when you think about what the academy does, and you think about the needs within our specialty, and, you know, I, I have a strong feeling that the academy is the keeper of the specialty, and I think it's the only organization that's really out there for the members and is interested in what the challenges that all the members have. And I think that when the academy is strongest, it's when you've got academic physicians that are most successful in their roles. And when you have private practices that are most successful in their roles, and, you know, we're roughly half and half these days. We're kind of trending towards that. I think that private practice might be a little bit bigger now, but we need for both sides of that equation to be balanced and strong so our our specialty can be the best and the strongest going forward together. And we needed this place where there was connection. We needed a way for private practice doctors to become leaders. There was no outreach that provided for identification of leaders, for development of leaders, for opportunity for private practice leaders. I think in academics, you guys have more of that community, more opportunities. I think that you're expected in your departments to do more work like that. But it was a dire time for private practice where we needed an investment in that next generation of leaders to make us stronger. And I, I really believe that if private practice wasn't able to step up and, and have a stronger voice in the academy to work with 
the academic institutions and their members, that it would ultimately weaken our specialty overall. So I know that was a lot longer answer than you were looking no. for, but it was, <laughs> it, it's really, it's all entangled together. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think ultimately for many of us that were in leadership positions involved along the way, this move was for what we thought was the best for the specialty. And we see how successful it is and how we've reached some of these disenfranchised members. And we think it's going to provide for more success overall for the specialty going forward. Yeah, it's very exciting. Congratulations to you and everybody who's involved in, in getting that to be an official section now. And I mean, it, like you said, the need, it exploded and everyone has, you know, instantly been able to connect and have this place to share ideas and troubles and heartaches and how are you dealing with this collaboration? And so it's amazing. Please, Ashley, I, I'm the one sitting behind this microphone, but I don't for a minute think that this was an individual accomplishment at all. There were a lot of people involved in this along the way. There's an extensive leadership arm that's been led by Mark Dubin and the executive committee. They are lots of engaged members that have led to this accomplishment and have uh, strengthened our academy in this position. And I, I don't for a minute want to claim that as an individual accomplishment at all. And I hope it didn't come off like that one bit because it, it truly was a, a large group effort and a lot of people should stand up and take credit and should be proud of what's happened there. Yeah, it's beautiful what you what you all have accomplished. And I think it's going to be a really nice addition to to the academy to have a section that is um, representative of the, the private practice community. Speaking to the preservation of private practice, um, I think that there are some people who, you know, see a future where there's, you know, hospital systems and academic centers and there's no place for private practice and these groups just need to kind of fall in line and get in these clinically integrated multi-specialty networks. You know, that's the only way to survive. Can you speak more to why it's important to preserve that private practice section and, and how, you know, the harmony between academics and private practice is maybe the better model to have the best of both and that it doesn't have to be an either or? It's a very, very good question. And I think that when you look at why the specialty has done so well and how the specialty has grown into shoulder specialties and done well in facial plastics and head and neck surgery and endocrine surgery and sleep medicine. When you consider how those efforts have led to so much success for otolaryngology, there, there are a lot of reasons for that, but part of it is due to training and technology and specialized skills what we're able to do for patients today is so impressive and change lives and save lives and improve lives. So there's a, a, a lot of credit to be given with how we've grown our field. And there's a lot of credit to be given to the quality of, of individual that we bring into the specialty and how we train them to make them so good. And then there's another arm of that, which probably doesn't get as much recognition. And that is the care that we offer in the communities and our ability in private practices and amongst a lot of general otolaryngologists to connect with the communities and referring providers to offer access points for 
routine care. I see a hundred patients with an asymmetric hearing loss or unilateral tinnitus, and I do a hundred MRIs. And out of those hundred people, I, I diagnose one acoustic neuroma and send it to a subspecialist for further treatment. And I'm really worried. And it, when you digest the workforce survey, you can see that amongst current residents, 75 to 80% want to become a subspecialist. And you can also see there's an emerging trend where new graduates want to be in more urban settings. And if our workforce is moving in this direction, then what happens to the platforms out in the community that have been so successful in offering general otolaryngology care to reaching patients, to connecting with them, improving their daily lives, and identifying the patients that need subspecialty care. Now, I worry, as I see the workforce trending towards a more subspecialized direction, who's going to do the work that's done in private practices and amongst general otolaryngologists in 10 years, 15 years? And these subspecialists that are so highly trained and do such amazing work, how are they going to get the referrals? Who's going to identify which patient needs to see the subspecialist? And I've got, we've got great APPs in my practice, but an APP can't serve the role of the general otolaryngologist. And, and if they do, who are they going to work for? Are academic practices going to supplant general otolaryngology private practices with APP practices that screen all of these patients? I, I don't think that's good for the quality of care. It's not reflective of the commitment we've made to the specialty. It's not a reflection of the, of the level of services that we've brought to these populations of patients that made ENT the strong specialty that it's become and allowed it to grow and grow and expand and be respected as one of the better specialties across the nation. So I, I do worry about that going forward. I worry about the subspecialist. As many subspecialists are being trained now, and if 80% of our workforce is going to be a subspecialist in the future, how happy are they going to be with a less qualified referral, a less selected population? Are they going to be able to do the specialized surgeries that they are trained to do and that they like to do? Are they going to do enough of them to maintain their skills? Who's going to take general otolaryngology call in community hospitals? And I know this is an emerging trend because as we see rural practices folding, a lot of these smaller hospitals out there don't even have ENT call. And it's creating an access problem and it's creating a void for, for treatment in some of these situations that are more pressing. And I'm concerned. The workforce is a major passion of mine. I'm so impressed with the work that A.J. Tompkins and his committee have done with this recent workforce survey. I noticed they've already sent out a second survey and um, was very impressed with some of the questions that they've asked. I'm very impressed with Academy leadership for, again, taking the onus of looking into this and providing some feedback for the membership about what's happening out there. There's no oversight in terms of workforce. No one's looking at, at what we're able to offer in communities and saying we've got too much or we've got too little. Nobody says we've got enough residencies or we don't have enough. If somebody wants to start a new residency, 
they just start one. No ACGME, they have to come in and, and credential them and uh, approve the quality of work they've done. But a large private hospital, and we're starting to see this, if, if they want to expand their local population of care, they open a residency, they bring in a larger patient population, and they drive their ancillaries more successful. In the meantime, nobody's studying what this does to our workforce and where we're training people and where we're placing them, looking at the, the cultural needs of communities and deciding who's there in what communities and are we are we meeting that challenge? It's not on the radars of people starting new residencies. It's not enough of a calculation for individuals. And I think Al Moradi says it the best. He says all of these individuals do what they think is right and, and think that they're they're responding to their impression and to a need and they're they're good players. They're they're noble in their pursuit. But no one says, no, you can't start another rhinology fellowship. You've got too many. If you want to start a fellowship, you start a fellowship. And it's incumbent upon an organization, and I think I see the academy stepping up to this role to at least shine a light on what's going on with our workforce and at least creating a platform where we can talk about what that means for the future of the specialty and how these different positions within our specialty are going to interact in the most optimal way so we support each other and can offer the best care for patients in our communities. Yeah, there's so many forces at play. You know, when you think about rural practices, and we've seen it in primary care like for years, even when I grew up in a small town and 20 years ago, like there wasn't a local doctor. There was a, a PA that kind of served the role as the primary care doctor for the community because the forces at play weren't conducive to being able to recruit uh, a physician out there. Um, and I, I have lots of patients these days when you ask who their PCP is, they'll say, you know, it's a nurse practitioner or a PA who's like that's who their primary care provider is. And then now you come in and you're within the specialty, coincidentally just training more and more subspecialists. So you have the forces that are making it hard to be a general ENT, you know, in the community or in a rural place. And then you have more people who are being subspecialized or super subspecialized. There's all these forces at work kind of pulling things that could potentially lead to situations where you have no one to provide general ENT care in the community or in places that are more rural. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I grew up in a similar size community, Ashley. Maybe that's why I like you so much. We have that background in common. <laughs> I read an article in the paper today about a small community in Alabama. And there are two primary care doctors working there, and they're both retiring this year. And that, that community has had to resort to a one-room building with a, a kiosk in the building where their community members come in and they can access a PA via telehealth, and that's their medical outreach. And I just think that's a sad, a sad reality for what's probably happening in a lot of communities out there. And it, it's something that we at least need to be talking about. I don't know. I don't know what the answers are. I just think we need to be talking about them and making measurements and considering, you know, what options we have to do better in the future. And like like you mm -hmm. said, shining a light on it, 
and then coming together to be connected and, and maybe clinically integrated or joined by some sort of group to be able to have the economies of scale and benefits of those numbers to at least be able to maybe have better contracting or, or be able to, you know, have better rates for purchasing things or, you know, all these little things can add up to support small practices that are still out there trying to preserve that, you know, small community practice and serve rural and small communities. There are a lot of challenges today in the delivery of healthcare, and it underscores the importance of advocacy. It underscores the importance of having physician leaders to step up in these roles, to identify the challenges, and to provide support and to provide a voice that stands up and defends what we're doing and helps secure a path into the future for us. And I think that's something that's very important that we don't talk about enough. I was I was asked to be an examiner for the oral boards this year, which was very exciting and a very interesting step for me. And it made me feel quite dumb also. I learned a lot. You know, I was going through these patient scenarios. I was like, yeah, I remember something about that. And But um, I was very pleased to have participated in that. But, you know, it's a virtual process. And while the candidate comes into the room and you walk them through the different clinical scenarios, and I think it was a team of like five people. And so I'm in this examining group with five people. And three of the people in my group were academic chairs and another academic physician and myself. And in the break between two candidates, my partners in the in the exam pod were talking about memberships into organizations. And they were talking about how there were so many organizations that they were in and how the costs continued to mount and how they didn't feel like they could stay members in all of these organizations. And they identified quickly that the academy was the most expensive one and that they were contemplating the need to drop their membership in the academy. And in the meantime, I felt completely out of my chair onto the floor. And I said, guys, I'm going to have to stop you there and just tell you, you know, what I stand for and how active that I am in the academy. But more than that, I want you to understand your role in being a member of the organization that provides advocacy for the specialty of which you are a chairman in charge of training the next generation. You need to realize the role that you play in terms of being a mentor for these residents and for these younger generations because they need to see that mirrored in you, your support and recognition for what the academy does for the specialty because no one else is positioned or able to advocate for otolaryngologists on the national stage. And there's a lot of advocacy needs out there, whether that's with politicians or Medicare or individual payers. Please go to the Academy website, look up the ENT pack and make a donation because about four in 100 of us do that. And we need to have more skin in the game so that our voice is heard and our interests are protected better and more willingly. And I'm sorry to climb up on that soapbox, Ashley. No, but it's okay. Those are some passion points. It's a conversation that needs to be had. And people need to realize, 
you've got subspecialty organizations that represent what you do and in, in your trade, but you don't have another group doing the work for you as an otolaryngologist that the academy does. And if we have 80% subspecialists, it's not going to be good if 80% of otolaryngologists are just members of their subspecialty organizations. We need everybody to be together to have a stronger voice to protect our interests. Yeah, advocacy was something that I wanted to dig into with you and talk about a little bit, because I think, especially in younger generations, you know, like as a resident, you're just kind of inundated with just learning how to operate, learning how to take care of patients, you know, all of these things. And I think it's very easy to be like, what's the academy doing for me? To not realize what's happening at the advocacy level and what does that even mean? Why is it important to be at the table as far as having influence about what conversations are being had and how it's going to ultimately affect everyone um, who is an otolaryngologist, subspecialist or not? You know, why should we care about advocacy? Well, for anyone out there who has a question of why you should be concerned about advocacy, venture to your office manager or to the person involved with your billing and collections and ask them, how much money do you collect in a given year based on the 25 modifier alone? The ability to perform a procedure during an, an office visit and your revenues associated with the performance of that task. And it's a huge part of our revenue. It, it needs to be reimbursed and it needs to be valued because it takes a lot of money to have these technologies in our businesses and in our practices. At the Academy, and especially on 3P, we fight for the 25 modifier, and we fight with payers that are constantly trying to change the game and to make it harder for us to do what we need to do. Denials, pre-certifications, disallowances. There are so many things that we have a talented and dedicated staff and a large group of volunteers who commit their time and efforts into fighting these battles for us so that our practices can do better. It's paramount. Yeah, I think that could be an entire podcast on its own. Oh, I think it should. I, I think the light <laughs> needs to be turned on. I, ju I just don't think people understand it enough. It's like you said, you know, I, I was that young doctor learning how to really practice medicine, growing my practice, having a young family, kids, kids events, doing all those things. You you really don't have any more bandwidth to understand some of the other things going on around you. And it's important for us to bring people into that understanding and that reality. Yeah, 100%. And as we, you know, wind down and round things out, what do you want to leave our, our listeners with? What's the core take-home message about the future of otolaryngology and the collaborative approach? That's a really good question, Ashley. I, I think <laughs> that we're, we're very lucky people to do what we do, to have the tools in our belt to improve other people's lives. And it's, it's just an honor to, to have the privilege. I think that when you go into your job next week, instead of considering the other doctors in your community as competitors, I, I think it's healthier to look at them as other people in your family and how we're going to support each other 
Uh, I'll give you an example. In Charleston, we did not have a good town-gown relationship. It was very competitive. It was seated in. It wasn't friendly. You know, we would refer people around the university, and we would try, you know, to to keep everything in house. And they had similar strategies. They placed physicians at our referring doctors' practices and paid rent there. And there was no back and forth. There was no collegiality. It was difficult to get notes. Much less did we ever have any involvement in grand rounds or resident training. We had, it, it just wasn't a, a very healthy relationship. And I'm sure this is happening in multiple places in the country. But just one example of collaboration, how that can work in your daily life. We have crossed these barriers in Charleston now, and our relationship is so strong, and we interact better, and we talk more, and we are going to start having residents rotate through our practice. And we're so excited about that. And I think that when you consider what the workforce issues are, I think one of the biggest challenges for the workforce to not go into subspecialties. When you come into an ENT training program, that's all you're seeing. Your mentors are naturally going to be subspecialist. How can you have it on your radar to go into private practice when you never see it? And I'm very hopeful that as we get more into this workforce, that we can collaborate more with academic institutions so that residents can have more private practice exposure. I think that's a big need. I I wish that I could expand upon all the challenges that that academic departments face on a daily basis. I would love to know more about those because I know they're real. I know a lot of things have changed in training. I know that the business models in academic institutions have created more financial pressures, and I, I don't understand those well enough to talk intelligibly with you about those. And I keep talking about the private practice side, but I'm very interested in in all those challenges that we face in the specialty across the board. But an example of collaboration and how we utilize that to improve the town-gown relationship and now how we're going to be able to offer residents a private practice exposure is a great example of things that you can do on a local level to strengthen the specialty and to have healthier relationships. How did that come to be? That's a good question. I hate to micro-dissect the relationship and hone in on on Charleston uh, because I I think this happens everywhere. But I I think that there was a leadership change at the um, academic center, and I think that that fueled just with my frustrations with physicians competing against physicians and not supporting each other just created enough momentum that we were able to engage on a different level and look at it completely different. We weren't bogged down in in the sins of the past, and we, we just had to leave all that behind, let it go, and come together and see what we could build fresh and new, and how could we bring in the players into a new environment and create a new culture. And, and it w- it took dedicated effort on both sides. And it, it's a great success story and a message I would like to see with any of you as you can do this in your community. 
you just have to reach out and be willing to engage and put the work in to make it happen. Yeah, I think I think that's a great bow to kind of tie this up, you know, just kind of that message of community and, you know, reaching out, having those relationships, having that network across practice lines, so to speak. If listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Are you on, you know, social media or do you want to throw your email out there? Do you want people to get in touch with you? <laughs> Actually, I'm I'm too old to be on social media. <laughs> No, I, I'm happy. I want to engage. I want to engage anyone who has interest in how we can do better together. What can we do for the specialty? So please reach out to me. My email address is gbrown at charlestonent.com. The name of my practice is Charleston ENT and Allergy. I'll be at the academy. I'm not quiet. I'm easy to reach and would be happy to engage any interested listener. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today. This this was fun and I think will be um, a springboard to other podcasts to kind of dive into these topics deeper in the future. Ashley, thank you again for having me as a guest. Thank you for what you guys do at Back Table for the specialty and how you shine a light on the specialty overall. I think it's a great outreach and am proud of your accomplishments. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.